said I was taking care of everyone's needs but my own and I was under the lie and illusion that wine was a reward and that it was me time and I had earned it. And what I didn't know was that it was adding to my anxiety, adding to my depression, and that I was shifting into a nightly wine habit. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 147. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. At Tribe Sober, we're all about community. So each week, we feature a community voice. Having a sober tribe has helped me understand that, you know, there are so many people who have kicked the drinking habit out there who are part of the tribe, and they share their stories. And every now and again, they remind us where they came from. And when you join the tribe, you realize that they came, they started right where you are, where you couldn't put the bottle down. And one day they did. And when they're sitting there telling you they've got 200 days, 400 days, however many days, even 40 days is quite a feat. It is so encouraging. And that's what has kept me going. So thank you to the tribe. I am so grateful to have let the drink go. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit Join our tribe. This week's podcast guest is Meg Geiswhite, who's written an excellent book, shining a light on some of the many lies that alcohol tells. She's called her book Intoxicating Lies, and she shares her own highly relatable story while busting myths about alcohol that have shaped the limiting beliefs of so many drinkers. Her book uncovers surprising insights into the alcohol industry together with our society's obsession with the mommy wine culture. I began by asking Meg to introduce herself. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Janet. It's an honor to be here. I'm Meg Geiswhite. I live in Newark, Delaware in the U.S., and I am in pharmaceutical sales, have been for about 25 years, and I'm married uh, where we will be celebrating our 20-year anniversary. This year, we have two children. My daughter is 15, almost 16, and my son is 13. Awesome. So let's dive into that drinking story, shall we, Meg? Tell us about being the Budweiser girl. Sure. That really happened uh, for me. After college, I had a lot of student loans, was getting into modeling, and it paid really well. And I literally could have been the poster child for the big alcohol industry as I was under the illusion that this was fun. 
I was not only the Budweiser girl, but the Jägermeister girl, the Guinness girl, passing around drinks and bars, doing the shots myself, and just guzzling down the lies. What ended up happening is in college and post-college, I had two sexual assaults, which really kind of catapulted me into an over-functioning and a need to control everything in my life because I had no control over my body at that time. Not only were the outward appearances very important to me because I was finding my worth in my appearance with these modeling gigs, but now I was also having shame and secrecy with these incidents that happened to me and the need to control everything in my life. After college, I got into sales and I really fell into the hustle culture where I am what I produce. I'm as good as my rankings. I started winning awards at my work and it just was the validation that I needed to know that I was enough. And then I fell into the beauty culture. Um, I got into aesthetic sales and again, wanted to look like I, I could do it all, have it all and look perfect while doing it. But it was exhausting to say the least. And I ended up finding my husband at that time. And we got married, like I said, and we had two kids and I found myself falling into the mommy wine culture. I bought the tea towels and the napkins and the t-shirts that said behind every great mom is a bottle of wine and I really felt like it was the solution to my parenting challenges. Again, I had the blinders up. I fell into all the intoxicating lies of alcohol and the intoxicating lies that I was telling myself that I needed to be perfect, I needed to be in control, I needed to be an overachiever. All of that turned me into a people pleaser as well, which were coping mechanisms to really deal with all the incidents and lies and stories that I was telling myself at the beginning of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible how we go from teenagers kind of dazzled by all the fun that alcohol, big alcohol tells us we're going to have with their products. And then, you know, we get married and then we get in the mommy juice. And it's it's amazing how we're manipulated from, from teenagers to retirement, actually, unless we get smart and start seeing through all, all the bullshit. <laughs> it's so true. It's a quote from your book. My alcohol use was no longer recreational, it was medicinal. I can so identify with that because in my 20s and 30s, I was drinking for fun, for social events. And then in my 40s and 50s, it switched. It was medicinal and I was uh, opening a bottle of wine when I got home from work just to de-stress and relax and, and cope, really. So was that when you started to get worried, when you realized it was becoming medicinal? Yeah, at first, it, you know, in that mommy wine culture, it was just on the weekends with friends. But, you know, it was very normalized to drink at kids' events and the neighborhood parties, play dates. So that was starting to move me down that one-way drinking highway. And then what ended up happening is I had three back-to-back -back major life issues that happened. And I didn't know how to deal with them. And so it quickly shifted that social use to a medicinal use because I was under so much stress and anxiety and overwhelmed from these three incidents, and I talk about them in the book, but it quickly shifted me to using my, the wine as a solution at night. It was my time, it, it turned off the chatter in my head. I was taking care of everyone's needs but my own, and I was 
under the lie and illusion that wine was a reward and that it was me time and I had earned it. And what I didn't know was that it was adding to my anxiety, adding to my depression, and that I was shifting into a nightly wine habit. Those three things resolved, but then I was stuck with a nightly wine habit. Yeah. Have you seen that meme that says uh, drinking alcohol is like pouring gasoline on our anxiety? Talk to us about this therapist. Yeah. <laughs> that made me smile in your book because I've heard that a lot. And I've coached people and they tell me that they're, they're very anxious people and they've been in therapy for years for their anxiety. And invariably, after a few months of sobriety, they say things like, I'm not so anxious anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to therapy anymore. So, I mean, we, dr we drink to cure our anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> we just add to it. We drink to celebrate, not realizing it's a depressant. <laughs> it really makes no sense. You know, there's no shame in that. We aren't told the truth. We aren't warned about this. We we only find this information out when we seek it, right? When we think we have a problem. And yes. here's the biggest problem. I finally got the courage to tell my therapist, I think I have a drinking problem. And she said to me, no, no, I think you're thinking about it too much. And her ill advice kept my gray area yeah. drinking going for two, two and a half more years. And so... For anybody who's listening, you know, I've heard physicians give permission slips saying your nightly wine is fine, you know, as long as it's, you know, one or two glasses or whatever. I've heard, um, and I've been there myself, where I'm in a workout trying to get better and detox from the nightly wine the night before, and they're saying, sweat out the toxins, it's okay if you're hungover, let's have mimosas after yoga, or, you know, I would do a, a 20, 30 mile bike ride, and at the end, it was a beer fest. So it's very confusing, and it's this culture of normalizing our gray area drinking. And I don't care if it's a wellness coach or a therapist or even your own physician, if you are questioning your relationship yeah. with alcohol, then that is the first red flag. And I had my inner knowing pleading with me, telling me something is not right. This is not serving us. I mean, I was waking up every day at a deficit, working all day, taking care of work, the home, the kids. And I was exhausted by 5 p.m. And that craving brain was like, you've earned this, you deserve it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the, these stories we tell ourselves, this messaging we get in TV and movies and culture at the gym. And so, you know, we have to listen to our own inner knowing. I think, I think finally, you know, in healthcare, we're starting to see more studies coming out, more physicians telling the truth about alcohol. But I had a conversation with my own primary care about this, my, only, my own primary care doctor. I said, you know, when you told me it would affect my sleep, I had my blinders on. I was so stuck in my gray area drinking, I didn't want to listen to you. Yeah. But when I quit drinking and my sleep improved dramatically, guess whose voice I heard first? It was yours. I remembered what you said to me. And I appreciate you being a physician who told me the truth. And I said to her, why do you think so many physicians give this permission slip or, or do this? And she said, because, Meg, they too are stuck in a gray area yeah. drinking. Yeah. And they don't want to hold the mirror up, right? And yeah. so yeah. 
it's a wide, vast category on the alcohol use, just, you know, alcohol yeah. use um, disorder spectrum. And if we don't start talking about it and stop this labeling and putting ourselves in a black and white drinking boxes where you're either a take it or leave it drinker or, not, or what people call an alcoholic, you know, that's just not, there's this spectrum and many of us fall into that gray area. It's vast. It's an epidemic for women. It's not yeah. talked about enough, in my opinion. And I think that the more we discuss it, the less stigma there will be around it. Absolutely. Yeah. And this kind of comparing ourselves with a down and out alcoholic, you know, the homeless person on the be right. bench, it's, it's crazy. You know, we're thinking, oh, well, at least we're holding it all together. But at what price? You know, it's exhausting for so many women to hold it all together and to conceal the fact that they've got a drinking problem. And that's yes. one of the joys of sobriety, because you can then direct all that energy into something a lot more positive, like writing so books, you know, yes. telling people about it. But yeah, I did feel for you because I, I thought it must have taken courage, you know, to say to the therapist, I'm worried about your, my drinking. And then she says that. But yeah, it's I think if if your drinking's on your mind, even if you only have two glasses of wine a week, then do something about it. Remove yeah. it completely because you probably uh, saw the Canadian research. I mean, just yes. this week two glasses of wine a week now they're saying two drinks a week aren't they and you're still at risk of seven types of cancer and 60 right. diseases etc it's it's toxic stuff I mean, and, yeah. and i think gradually it's getting out into the public domain how dangerous it is just like smoking did you know right when i i, I used to smoke and uh, when i started smoking many years ago cigarettes could actually be advertised you know we used to see adverts with guys in white coats saying this brand is better than this brand it was it was crazy but yeah. once they banned that the information that smoking gave you lung cancer was suddenly in the media and that's when people thought, my God, I'm not going to smoke anymore. And I think eventually alcohol will have a, a cigarette moment. The world will wake up, but it's certainly under, under the spell at the moment. And I think it's got worse before it's going to get better. I 100% agree with you. One of my very first jobs in pharmaceuticals, I remember calling on a doctor and he was smoking cigarettes as I was detailing him at his desk. I mean, it, you just look back at that and think there's this doctor having cigarettes yeah. while, at lunch and how far we've come. And I agree with you. I think alcohol is going to have its day as well in the near future. Yeah. And that's why a lot of breweries and liquor companies are, are pouring money into the alcohol-free markets. Right. So yes, they they know the writing's on the wall. So they're thinking, how are we going to keep up our massive profits? Let's go this way. And, yes. you know, I mean, for us, it, it is great that we now have an alternative. Because when I gave up drinking seven years ago, there was no alternative. That's you right. either had a glass of wine or a glass of water, which, you know, I remember made me feel even more cross about the whole thing than right. ever. Right, it makes but you feel now, isolated and left yeah. out and you want to be yeah. feel like you're part of the festivities, right? Absolutely. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So when did the kind of moment of change come for you? When did you 
decide that you can't do this anymore and you were going to quit? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was suffering silently, really badly. I felt like I was the problem. I couldn't get it together that I drank when I would ask my friends. They were like, Meg, you drink just like I do. You don't have a problem. I mean, even my family would say to me, do you think you're addicted? I don't think you are. It was very confusing. I had a divided mind. I had a divided heart. And I was stuck in the detox to retox loop on a daily basis. And it was a maddening Groundhog's Day. And when I no longer wanted my kids to do sports in the evening so that I could come home to my rewarding glass of wine, I realized I'm not in control. Remember, I want to be in control of everything. I'm not in control. This is in control of me. And it scared me. And I could never quit for more than two weeks. I would quit you know, do a cleanse or quit for two weeks. And I didn't know at the time, because again, we're not told this until we seek it out, that it takes two weeks for alcohol to leave your body. And so I was never really getting to that point where it was ever fully out of my body and giving my body a chance to feel what it felt like without it in it. And I didn't know that. But I was so pulled back by day 14. It was like, I've got to have that drink. Because yeah. my it was finally leaving my body. My body's like, where is it? <laughs> yeah, and you'd been uh, using willpower, I'm sure, for those yes. two weeks. Because nothing really changes until we change our mindset and start seeing alcohol for the poison that it is. Correct. Because if we still think of it as something desirable, then it's going to be a, a never-ending struggle. It's so true. I think that you know, if you have a lurking belief that alcohol provides something for you, Some of the women in my group, they've been alcohol-free for six months, but they're going to Paris. And so they have still this romanticized view of alcohol, which I told them that is still a lurking belief. You're still giving it value. You still believe that it will make the trip better. As long as you have a lie, it is a lie, because really, will it make it better? It's only going to make you more tired. It's only, why are we using a depressant to celebrate at a wedding or a huge trip like that? But if you are in that mindset, you are going to be stuck in a deprivation mindset. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it just makes it so difficult as well. Yeah, Yeah, I used to use willpower. I would get through every year I could do dry January 30 days, you know, probably drinking a little bit more before January Mm -hmm. over Christmas and then in February making up for last time, of course. But then telling myself, well, I can't possibly be an alcoholic because I've just done a dry month. (laughs) <laughs> yep, that's the these are the lies we tell ourselves. The lies, yeah. So you you had this moment when you thought, um, here I am wishing my kids aren't doing sports so I can have my wine. Was that when you joined Sober Sis? Yes. So I saw um, Jen Couch's Sober Sis video on the detox to retox loop, and I was like, oh my god, that is me. And this was back in 2019, so there wasn't a lot of discussion about gray area drinking. And I thought, you know, I just need to get a few tools. This is my problem. I just need to get bring back my drinking into what everybody else has got under control and so-called normal drinking, whatever that means. And so I clicked on her 21-day reset. And there were hundreds of women in her group. And I thought, 
I thought it was going to be me and three other women. I was like, why are there so many women in here? And it, it got me really curious. And then because I love to sell on science and I'm in pharmaceutical sales, I read Annie Grace's This Naked Mind and the veil started to come down on the truth about science. And I started asking myself all kinds of questions like, why aren't we warned about this? Why isn't it on the bottle? You know, why is this a carcinogenic? Everything that you just said, I'm not going to go through it all. But, you know, I just started asking myself more and more questions. I'm a podcast junkie. I live in my car for my job. I started listening to every podcast I could, reading quit lit books. And after 21 days, I had never felt better. My eczema had, was clearing up. I was starting to sleep better and I thought I'm going to give this a little bit more time and I stayed curious. Then uh, Jen came out with an alcohol-free lifestyle program which was 90 days and so I really fell into that instant gratification society culture too like oh I'll just fix myself in 30 days you know I'll be better like you said think I'm in control again get a few tools under my belt but Really, it wasn't till around 100 days that things started shifting in my brain for me. That was when I started to feel the true changes happening. And I think that's the other illusion and myth that we're under is that I can fix this and maybe even go back to moderation within 30 days. It's yeah. a real myth out there. And I guess because Jen says it's a reset, that's a bit of, oh, well, maybe I can reset to moderation. But obviously right. she knows that people that will be attracted to a reset are already dependent and that they, they need to continue. But yeah. she brings people in gently. And, you know, that's that's clever because a lot of people, they, they think quitting is it would be just the end of, right. of the world. You know, it's a non, it's a non-judgment, very safe, loving community, and much, I'm sure, like your community as well. You know, mm -hmm. I think community is key because yeah, absolutely. we get drinking amnesia after a few months. I mean, I talk about it in my book. I had an incident that happened, you know, 15 months after <laughs> I had been alcohol-free. I mean, we can talk about it if you want, but it happens. It's a true yeah, yeah. thing. And if you don't stay in a community that kind of keeps you yeah. in this, reminds you. Mm -hmm. You have to continue yeah. to rewire and reframe. I mean, I think back, my very first impression with alcohol happened when I was a little girl and my parents used to have cocktail parties and I would serve hors d'oeuvres to the guests and I saw this is how the way that you connect. This is how you let off steam after a hard week. This is how you have fun. Now, that, I was a little girl. So all those years of all that messaging is not going to be undone in 30 days. No, no way. Takes but I like time. the way you went from 30 days to 100 days and then a little bit longer. But this uh, thing that happens to you after 15 months, have you heard the expression fading effect bias? Yes. Because it's William got a Porter? name. Yes. yes, yes. And I think it's really helpful to realize that there is a thing called fab. You know, we call it fab to be aware of it because if after 15 months you think, oh, maybe I can have a glass of champagne at that wedding. Rather than do it and get into trouble again, you, you think, uh, oh, there's a bit of fab going on in my brain. Let's, let's ignore that, shall we? 
people on our community, somebody will say, oh, you know, I've been, I've done a year now. I think I'm going to have a glass of wine. Everyone's going, no. <laughs> they rally around you and bring you back yeah. into the, the truth, right? Not the lie, yeah. the truth. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so refreshing, isn't it, about sobriety communities, because you find the truth at last. And people are very willing to be vulnerable and to be honest. And it, it's the opposite of the kind of cocktail party you were handing out hors d'oeuvres to, you know, when mostly it's about status. <laughs> yes, that old saying that connection is the antidote to addiction, yeah. you know, and so yeah. when we get in community, we realize we're not alone. I think this feeling of shame that comes along with our drinking patterns and our past keeps us trapped because it's yeah. a feeling First of all, it's an emotion that does pass, but it's a feeling of unworthiness. We have got to realize that we are more than enough. We are inherently more than enough. I talk about this, you know, at the end of the book. Yeah. But we, we tend to beat ourselves up and we're so hard on ourselves, especially as women. We try to do it all and do it perfectly and we're exhausted and big alcohol knows we're exhausted and they're preying on, on that vulnerability. And when we come together and... We say, me too, me too, I feel the same way, yeah, yeah. and that we need community and connection and support and rest, not wine, not alcohol. Yes, yes the, the fact that a glass of wine has been promoted as an act of self-care, right. when it's completely the opposite Such for BS. some of us, isn't it? Yeah, and as you say, we need to rest, and, and when you're sober, you, you're more in tune with what you really need, aren't you? And if you need to rest you can sense it because you you're connected with yourself as well as other people every saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol free living if you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one saturday just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com that's janet j-a-n-e-t at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation. So let's talk about the limiting beliefs. You know, I'm a great fan of Annie Grace as well. You wrote in your book something about worried about being boring and then some somebody said something to you at a Christmas lunch, didn't they? Let's face it, the first holiday parties, the first vacation, the first wedding that you do alcohol-free you're going to feel awkward because you don't yeah. have that substance numbing those rough edges, that loud music, that loud noise and energy coming at you. It does have this feeling that washes over you that Annie Grace talks about. For 20 minutes, you will feel yeah. Yeah. like you have the, the liquid courage to do yeah. the event. However, we all complain that we have not enough time in our day. What we end up doing is guzzling down more and more of that alcohol to get that first 20 minutes back. And you can't. Your dopamine drops lower. Yeah. And you're always chasing it. So what an absolute time suck, number one. Yeah. Number two, when I had in the story in my book, someone tell me that, that my sister and I who had just quit drinking. I mean, I don't, we were like maybe a month at that time. You were in the sober awkward stage. Yes, it felt like a <laughs> knife coming through my heart. I literally had to get up from the holiday party and go outside and take a few deep breaths. And again, I'm going to go back to community. I got online we, we, yeah. with my community and I said, I 
am having an effort moment. Like this hurts so badly. This yeah, is my greatest hurts. fear. Yeah. And I feel like it may be true. And they said, no, 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 no. This is about her drinking. She is worried that she will be boring if she quits drinking. This is not about you. And I was like, oh my God, they're right. Again, why connection is so critically important. I, in the book, have a whole chapter about finding your fun self again. There's so many things. Uh, one of the biggest things I will say is go back to when you were a little girl. Yeah. What brought your soul alive when you're a little girl? I love to be out in nature. I used to clean the creeks and get into the water. I loved riding my bike. I loved painting. So now when I go on bike rides through the trails, the biking trails of Delaware, my soul comes alive. I listen to yeah. a playlist of don't give up. You can do this type of music that's women empowering women. And I go on walks where I try to find the beauty in the day and that's where the magic shows up. So it could be a sunset, a flower, a rock. I collect rocks that are in the shape of hearts. It's where the magic comes alive and it is a much more fulfilling feeling than that 20 minute buzz that then you're chasing for the rest of the night that sinks yeah. you lower and compounds the whole next day. You're just freezing your problems or whatever's going on in your life till the next day. I recently took a painting class. At first I was like, I don't have time to do this. I'm a busy working mom. Why did I sign myself up for this? You know, I'm kind of like walking into the class, beating myself up because it's a two hour class. And I got in there and my to-do list just melted away. I immersed myself in those colors. The little girl inside of me came alive and I went home a better mom a better wife. My conversations at work are more clear, intentional, present minded. That's what we want, right? And what do we want to model to our children, really? That when exactly. life gets hard, we're going to pat ourselves at every turn? No, I want my children to see that the beauty is in the mess. And sometimes it is not pretty, right? It is hard. And I talk about that with some stories in my book. But I rather them see that, that I get through it, and that then they see me go meditate or take some deep breaths or go for a walk to release those emotions, then go hit the liquor cabinet. Exactly. Because if we do that, we're just teaching them that liquor is the way to solve our problems. And we're ingraining those same messages that we got as little girls, right? That you got giving out the hors d'oeuvres and watching everyone connect, yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We often give our, our people that tip about going back to their childhood. If you've been drinking for decades, you haven't really built any hobbies or interests because I always said that my hobby was socializing, by which, of course, I meant drinking wine with my friends. Right. So if you've spent all your spare time doing that, you haven't really built any interests so we say to people you know because often people say to me well I don't know what I do like doing I just like drinking frankly <laughs> so I say you know think back to when you were a little girl and I recommend maybe they get some coaching if they really yes. can't can't think of anything else to do that's a great tip I think think what you used to enjoy as a child you talk about a why list which is great we get people to write their why lists What's on yours? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, I hear sometimes from women, my why is to lose weight. And if it's a superficial why that can ebb and flow, it has to be a deep rooted why that so when the let the big life challenges come storming in, and they will, just because you quit drinking doesn't mean life gets any easier, that your why is so deeply anchored like that of a tree that you may sway in the wind, but you're not going to fall over and go back to drinking. So my why, I believe that I am a direct reflection of God's goodness and light in this world. And I cannot be creative, like you said, live into my fullest potential and be the best expression of that light if I have alcohol corroding that connection, which it was, every day was a slight shade of gray for me, honestly. It was always working off like a slight hangover. I mean, on occasion, I had big drinking, binging episodes, but they were so far and few between. It was really this slight, constant gray in my life. And I wasn't doing the writing that I loved to do as a little girl, too. I have tons of journals from when I was younger. And then you can see the drinking period that went away. So the why is most importantly for me and for myself. I didn't do this for anybody else. It was for myself. It is to be also for my family, the best, most clear-minded present mother who has the energy to play with them on the playground, who wants to read them the bedtime story and not rush it to get to my rewarding glass of wine. It was always taking, not giving. And so the why has to be very deep-rooted, in my opinion, really for yourself, because In my opinion, it can come and go, other things in your lives, but you have to rescue you every day. And every day you will wake up with a choice to choose to put yourself first. And choosing to be alcohol-free, like you said, is the greatest act of self-love and self-care. And the thing about a why list is, uh, I mean, we run workshops and things. And at the end of those workshops, people are really motivated. And they say, yeah, you know, I'm going to do this. And I say, well, make sure your why list is in your journal. And then in, you know, three weeks time when it's all getting a bit, you know, boring and hard, keep looking at that why list. And we've got one lady, quite a recent member, she keeps her wireless on her phone as photographs. Oh. She's got her car keys, you know, because she used to drink and drive. And she's got her family and she's got a painting, you know, because she's got into drawing again. So I think it's a great thing to have it on your phone, you know, because we've oh, I love got that. our phone there. So that was that was very creative of her. I was very impressed. Yeah, we need that that why list to keep us going. And I think that our whys evolve a little bit as well as we move into our sobriety and things start changing. I agree. So how long have you been alcohol-free now, Megan? Are you still doing the work? So I've been alcohol-free for a little over three years now. I quit November of 2019, had one data point. which I talk about in the book, but that really shifted me into never wanting to drink again. But I didn't go back to day one, even with that data point. In my opinion, if you, if it's feedback and it moves you further down that yeah. journey, then we count the whole time. You know, no, it's like... It was a reminder. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like Holly Whitaker says in her book, Quit Like a Woman. We don't just get up and run the New York Marathon. We have to train for it. How do you sustain your sobriety? What What's your work, your day? Oh, work? my work. Yes, yes. I love that question. 
I believe that the first year of becoming alcohol-free was very much about learning about the truth about science and all the lies and rewiring and reframing everything in my brain. I followed all the sobriety websites that I could on social media. I changed radio stations. One of the radio stations I listened to had a lot of music that had pro-drinking messages in there, and I, I switched. I really protected my sobriety. The second year, I dove into what was causing me to drink, what was at the root, like going upstream. And I'm a, I talk a lot about it in the book. I'm a very big proponent of therapy. Podcasts are phenomenal, quitlet, and again, community, right? And so it's getting that support to keep you doing what I call the inner work, aka the heart work, because it's this return to love for yourself. It's really diving into that self-compassion, shedding that shame, and really letting go of what I used to live in when I was drinking is a triangle of either being a victim, a rescuer, or a prosecutor judging someone. And I had to let go of that triangle and work through why was I staying in that drama triangle. And what I want to say is that that work is never done. So the inner work is never done. I continue to do it even in year three. Yeah, I love the, um, the, the feeling that the work is never done. And I think that sobriety is like a springboard to self-development. And I certainly didn't imagine it would ever be like that. I thought, well, I'll stop drinking and I'll be more healthy and have more energy maybe. But I didn't realize it would lead to the uh, yeah. surprising joy of being sober. I love that title. I mean, I love yes. the book, but I think the title is is so true because a lot of us thought sobriety would be a grey and boring place, and it's it's oh. anything but, isn't it? It's oh. the alcohol that keeps us in a grey yes. and boring place. <laughs> when you think when you're a drinker, you you accept that you you feel a bit below par most days. You know, even if you're not hungover, you just feel a bit ugh when you wake up in the morning. It's like you don't even know. And that's why when you first yeah. get, you become alcohol-free, you want everybody to feel this because it's that pink cloud. It's such a good feeling. You know, you have to do the hard work. It for Sobriety forces you to go inward. However, when you go inward, like you said, it is the most beautiful part of the journey because that's when the magic shows up. And that's yeah. when life is going to keep coming at you, but it stops being and at you and it starts being for you. Like I see life now when hard things come up as invitations to grow. It's like, hmm, nice. yeah. wonder, you stay curious, like curiosity again and connection yeah. are the antidote. So I like, I wonder why this is happening to me. I wonder what it's here to teach me. See it as an invitation to grow versus why me? Why did this happen to me? That's that victimhood, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, f a fabulous attitude. And we talk about how we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. Rather than chase that feeling away with alcohol. Yeah. So let's talk about your book, because I can see it right behind you. <laughs> Intoxicating Lies, great title. So just tell us to start with a little bit about who it's for and why you wrote it. Yeah, thank you. The book is really geared towards women, although I've had some men read it. In fact, um, one of my friend's husbands read it and said, 
I am so glad that I read this book because it allowed me to see everything my wife was doing for our household and for our family and it opened my eyes to everything that she's doing and how I need to be giving her more help. Hey, right? You just never know who it's going to speak to, but it is mostly geared towards women who are stuck in gray area of drinking as well as the limiting beliefs and lies that we tell ourselves. So again, the book starts out with the lies that we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. And again, are they really true or are they just stories? And then it goes into the five most intoxicating lies about alcohol. And my belief is that alcohol keeps us trapped in those original stories and lies that we are telling ourselves that we're not good enough. And just the shame alone around drinking can keep us trapped in these lies, as well as that feeling of not good enough, which is just not true. And so the end of the book, it really goes into the freedom that we get when we remove alcohol and the truth of who we are, that we have this beautiful, bright light within us. All of the answers lie within us, but we have this dust and conditioned beliefs and layers of earth of you know messaging and all these things that are really kind of clouding and suppressing that bright light within that true gem and we just need to dust her off there's there's no improving or fixing you are already enough yeah i love that we are enough and we do have the answers inside us but if we drink we're not connected to those answers are we right corrodes it so your book is about debunking myths about alcohol as well. What are the biggest myths about alcohol, do you think, in your view? There's so many, but pick a few. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. The five that I go over, but the one that I hear the most is that I deserve a drink. That is the one that when I'm in groups with women, I hear the most. That is the illusion that we have really fallen trapped to, that this is a solution to our problems, to our parenting. It is a reward. And what a crappy consolation prize we're giving ourselves, you know? You know, I think the other big one is that we think we can control it. It is a highly addictive drug. And then more shame and guilt comes in when we can't control it. Yeah. What's wrong with us? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with you. The problem is not you. The problem is alcohol. Absolutely. That's why the shame has to go, really. Yes. So if someone's listening to this and thinks, well, it's all right for them to, they've been sober for years, but I've no idea how how I'm ever going to do this. What would you say to encourage them? Exactly what you said earlier, to start journaling their whys, what they want, and what they believe alcohol is providing for them. So um, the five most intoxicating lies are on my website and intoxicatinglies.com. And if you go to backslash common, you can get a free, your listeners can get a free downloadable PDF of the five most intoxicating lies. And I encourage them to print that out and to journal. Do you believe these lies? And what do you believe that alcohol is providing for you? And stay curious, get into community, stay connected. And I also go in my book, over in my book, the seven different types of rest. Learn how to get into true self-care. 
You know, we, we have another illusion out there that a manicure or a pedicure is self-care. It's nice, don't get me wrong, but that isn't really true self-care. I'm talking about meditation, breath work, movement, things that give you long-lasting ways of being able to process all of these emotions that are going to come up once you remove alcohol. Yeah, things that really nourish us. Yes, and regulate our nervous system. Yeah, and give us an alternative to go to when we think, I deserve a reward, you know. Right. Don't have a, a glass of wine, meditate for 15 minutes or go for a walk in nature. There's, but we have to get into the habit, don't we, of doing those other things. And be, sh be gentle with yourself. It's baby yeah. steps. It takes time. So you've mentioned your website there. Uh, you've got it. What's your Instagram, Meg? I'm at Intoxicating Lies Book. So all one word at Intoxicating Lies Book. And I'm also okay, on I'll... Facebook. Um, right. Facebook is Intoxicating Lies, One Woman's Journey to Freedom from Gray Area Drinking. It is sold on Amazon, I think, where you are. So folks can get it now. It released this past Tuesday and it's um, doing very well. Thank you for the inspiration, Meg. I think so many of our listeners will identify with your story. Let's pull out some key points. After college, Meg did some modelling, and as she puts it, she was the poster girl for alcohol. She was Miss Budweiser and the Guinness Girl, to name just two of her modelling gigs, fully buying into the false messaging from big alcohol that we need alcohol to have fun. And as she got married and had children, she then found herself being sucked into the mommy juice culture, seeing it as an essential parenting aid. The turning point for Meg came when, as she puts it, my alcohol use was no longer recreational, it was medicinal. This is such a red flag of dependence for so many of us. If you'd like our free PDF called 30 Signs You Need to Take a Break from Alcohol, then just email me, janet at tribesober.com. For Meg, the shift from pleasure to medicinal came as she went through a particularly stressful time in her life. She felt dutiful yet dead. People pleasing and taking care of everybody's needs but her own. At this time, she was seeing wine as a reward to be taken when she could finally grab some me time. Of course, she now understands that this perceived reward was just adding to her stress and anxiety. And as the external stressors faded away, she found herself left with a nightly wine habit. One day, she plucked up the courage to tell her therapist that she was worried about her drinking, only to be told that she was simply thinking about it too much. That ill-judged advice resulted in Meg drinking for two more years. So we agreed that whatever your therapist, doctor, friend says to you about your drinking, if it's on your mind, then reach out and get some help and advice. Go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe to join a sobriety community who can enable you to change your relationship with alcohol. Meg and I agreed that the stigma needs to be lifted from women and their drinking and we need to be able to talk about it more openly. And of course, that's what Meg is trying to achieve with her book and what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast. Society likes to put people in boxes and pushes the false belief that if we are not a homeless alcoholic, then we're fine. 
whereas in fact we're likely to be somewhere on the alcohol use disorder spectrum, which is vast. Rather than comparing ourselves with down-and-out alcoholics, we should be comparing ourselves with the best version of ourselves that we could be. Let's not forget that alcohol will always prevent us from reaching our potential. Meg's moment of truth came when she found herself resenting her kids who wanted to stay late at school to do sport. After all, it was interfering with her wine drinking time. That made her realise that she was no longer in control and this scared her. That's when she joined Sober Sis, thinking that the 21-day reset would enable her to drink moderately. At that time, she just wanted some tools to help her drink normally. And of course, normal drinking is yet another intoxicating lie. Once we've crossed the line into dependence, we need to quit drinking completely and stop hankering after moderation. After all, moderate drinkers just moderate. They don't have to join a reset program. We agreed that in fact Sobus's 21-day reset program appeals to a lot of people who are dependent but believe that they will be able to moderate with the right tools. And the important thing, of course, is to bring these people into the conversation. And that's what we do with our five-day boot camps. You can join our free Facebook group called Sobriety Boot Camp and you'll be ready to participate in the next one. For Meg, the veil of lies about alcohol began to lift as she read This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. In fact, she felt great at the end of her 21-day challenge and decided to stay curious and continued on to a 90-day challenge. That's the right way to do it, step by step. We avoid the F word here at Tribe Sober. The thought of giving up alcohol forever is just too daunting at first. So go for 30 days, then 100, then 6 months and then a year. After an alcohol-free year, it's highly unlikely you'll want to start drinking again, unless you're still harbouring a false belief that alcohol can add something to your life. We talked about the importance of mindset, and Meg told us that six of the ladies in her sober community were going on a trip to Paris. Even though they had six months of sobriety, they still felt that alcohol would enhance the experience and that they were missing out somewhat. As Meg says, they are stuck in the deprivation mindset. After a hundred sober days, Meg began to get glimpses of just how awesome an alcohol-free life could be and kept asking herself, what if I just kept going? It's so important to stay curious. She did, and now she's three years alcohol-free. We agreed on the importance of being in a sober community as we progress further on our journey. Meg talks about the drinking amnesia, also known as fading effect bias. Meg was struck by this 15 months into sobriety, so she needed her community to remind her that it's only fading effect bias. We need our community so that we realise we're not alone in this. We need our community so that we can ditch the shame. We talked about sober firsts and how tricky they can be. Meg had to call on her community when she was at a dinner in early sobriety and challenged for being boring. A community will give you live advice. We get people on our group saying, help, how can I cope with this situation? So we're there to talk people down. 
So if you're looking for a sober community, then just go to tribesober.com, hit join our tribe and read about the support we offer. Meg devoted her first year of sobriety to educating herself about the science. And as she moved into year two, it was more about the heart work within her sober community. She describes heart work as returning to love yourself, finding self-compassion and shedding the shame. Meg found herself wondering why we aren't warned against the dangers of alcohol. In fact, alcohol was registered as a number one carcinogen by the World Health Organization back in 1988, but that information is rarely highlighted in the public domain. Have a listen to my podcast interview with Professor Stockwell. It's called The Deadliest Secret We Must All Share, and it highlights the link between alcohol and seven different types of cancer. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's rather ironic that it's left to quitlit authors and podcasters to draw attention to the dangers of alcohol. But perhaps the message is all the more powerful, coming from people who've struggled with dependence. So please buy Meg's book and share this podcast to help us to get the message out there to some of the many people who need it. Meg's book is called Intoxicating Lies and it's available on Amazon. Her website is called intoxicatinglies.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. So let me end with a member message from our six-month sober chat room. I love Meg's description of the heart work that takes place as we continue to do the work in our community. Check out this message from Ellen in the US. Thanks for this, Janice. I really needed to read this. I was a constant people pleaser. Perhaps one of the reasons I drank was because I was so exhausted meeting people's expectations. I'm entering my 40s this year and I'm finding that I'm also making my circle of friends smaller and investing time in people who I really value and people who really value me. People who understand boundaries. Thank you, Ellen. So if you're looking for a non-judgmental community who will support you through the highs and lows of this life-changing journey, then please hit tribesober.com and click on Join Our Tribe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.